0: I don't believe in God, but I sure miss him. That's the opening line to Julian Barnes' memoirs, uh, Nothing to be Frightened of. He's a British novelist, and he says that he lost his faith in God when he was a teenager, and he couldn't imagine or bear the thought that a big God would have such scruples about his teenage lustful exploits. Not to mention his grandparents watching from heaven. So he walked away. Things were good until midlife, and he had uh, what he would call the wake up call to mortality. Here's how he described it it is like being in an unfamiliar hotel room where the alarm clock has been left on the previous occupant's setting, and at some ungodly hour you are suddenly pitched from sleep into darkness panic and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world rented world you don't get to stay then (laughs) throughout his novel julian like turns into amos because he he even though he's an atheist he's saying i keep bumping into god everywhere everywhere And he goes off uh, on all things, uh, of all things, on the Church of England, the niceties of what he calls social liberal religion. He goes off on the Church of England, all Amos. Listen, doesn't he sound like Amos? There seems little point in a religion which is merely a weekly social event, apart, of course, from the normal pleasures of a weekly social event. As opposed to one which tells you exactly how to live. Which colors and stains everything. What's the point of faith unless you and it are serious? Seriously serious. Unless your religion fills, directs, stains, and sustains your life. That's Amos from an atheist. The whole summary I would give of Julian Barnes' memoirs could be captured in a line, and I, I would put it this way. Every person wagers on who defines reality. Every person has to wager on who has the power to define reality. for us. Today, we come to Amos, and we're going to have a seat at the gambler's table. And at this table, there's two men wagering. The first man is Amaziah. He is the priest of Bethel. He is in Jeroboam the king's pocket. He is a political person, he's a religious person, but he believes, and this is his reality, he believes that God has given it to Israel to be people of comfort, pleasure, security, and wealth that those are the signs of God's blessing, that those are why we're here. That's the reality. He believes that religion is to be a privatized religion for personal benefit. And, in fact, he has led a movement in Israel to make God a projection of their most cherished values, wealth, comfort, security. So religion and the Amaziah, he has wagered on this, that everything's for the here and now. That I'm about Jeroboam's kingdom. I'm about getting the good life and everything I can now. At the other side of the table sits a guy named Amos. You may have heard of him. He's a farmer and a poet. And he comes to the table saying this. Thus says the Lord. In the law you've read where the things that matter to me, my heart is for the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. If you follow me, I give you a new heart, and my heart comes out of your heart, and you are always moving in love towards people. We don't care much about comfort, security, wealth. We don't. Those are tools. They're not the end. We care about God's heart reaching the people of this world. There you have the gambler's table. Who's right? On the one hand is Jeroboam. Jeroboam, I mean, uh amaziah and he's about jeroboam's kingdom on the other side is amos and he's about god's kingdom an invisible kingdom a kingdom that you really have to live in faith to even see who's right whose definition of reality i want us to uh, read this encounter that takes place at the gambler's table it's a very interesting dialogue and it's the only time in Amos where there's actually a little story and we get to see some biographical detail. It's an interesting exchange about two world views. And so what I want you to do is as, uh, as we read it together, I'll read it, you follow along, I want you to be thinking of how you would interpret this dialogue between Amos and Amaziah with Twitter. That's right. I want you to hashtag it. I'll give you a couple of examples, but then I want you to respond back to me with some hashtags about what you would say concerning this exchange. Okay, let's try it. Let's first read it. I'll read, you follow. Here is the gambler's table. They're trying to decide who defines reality and wager their life on it. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary. And the temple of the kingdom. Amos answers Amaziah. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. And your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. and Your land will be measured and divided up. And you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile. Away from their native land. So let's Twitter, shall we? If you had to interpret that exchange and put some words on it, what would you tweet? Here are some of the ones I thought of. Had some fun with this. Maybe it's a new way to do Bible study. Hashtag. Don't mess with God. Hashtag. Who defines reality? Hashtag another kingdom. Hashtag here and now will be over and out. Hashtag sin has consequences. Hashtag choices matter. Hashtag Amaziah is Jim Baker. <laughs> Might get some emails on that one. Hashtag Amos got guts. Hashtag Amaziah or Amos? Which for you? What would you hashtag? Shout it out. Let's have some fun. Can we? Got it? Got it. Say it again? <laughs> Any other who of you want to tweet? Hashtag perspective. Hashtag you're out of here. God's land. Plan. Two men, two worldviews, two ideas, two kingdoms at the gambler's table, and they have to wager their life on the definition of reality. What I want to do now is back up a little bit and see what brought them to the table and this encounter. And uh, it was actually a series of very interesting visions. So Amos is from the southern, the south in Jerusalem, and God sends him to Israel to get Israel back in the game, back on mission. And so Amos is up in Bethel where the main worship temple is. And he's preaching and preaching. And all of a sudden, as God tended to do with the prophets, he broke in. And he gives these visions. Now, you need to understand in the prophetic world, these idea of visions, they were like to get people attention in high definition, Right? a vision well flannery o'connor she put it this way once she said to the almost blind you have to draw in large startling figures and to the almost the hard of hearing you've got to shout so a vision to a prophet was like a shout to those who were hard of hearing or a big writing to those who were almost blind and that's what a vision is is to really wake people up And so he sends these visions, and he sends them in pairs, interestingly enough. And we're just going to look at the first two, and then Numbers 3 and 4. The last one is at the beginning of chapter 9. You'll talk about it in your small groups uh, this week, if you're in a small group. And it's, it's it's a vision, the last one, in the beginning of chapter 9, where the God is standing next to the altar at the temple in Bethel, where the golden calf was, and where Amaziah would normally stand. And it's God who says, it's over. No one escapes. Done. That's the fifth vision and the last vision. There's visions, two pairs of visions that lead to the fifth vision. And pairs are always interesting because it's like God saying, this is doubly sure. The first pair. Let's look at the first pair. And it tells us something about God, which we'll get to. But here are the first vision, the first two pair of visions this is in uh, chapter 7, 1-3. to three. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. So Amos is preaching. He has this vision. And this is what's going to lead to the encounter with Amaziah. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen. Just before we go to the second vision, the second pair, or the uh, number two. It's the timing that's significant in this vision. Because notice it's saying that it's after the king's share had been harvested. In other words, after Jeroboam's, the king's horses had eaten. In other words, (laughs) after they paid their taxes. The locusts come. A locust is a brown grasshopper. That hatches in the spring. And uh, the timing's significant. If it had come a week earlier. They would have been okay. Because there was no sprouts. If they would come a week after. The plants would have been stronger. But the locusts come when they sprout. And thus they get everything. And the farmers. Who now have no hay and grain. To feed their horses. They lose everything. They lose their livestock. The farmers suffer. And so Amos being a farmer. Sees this. He sees the devastation of this vision. Here's the second vision, verses 4-6. to This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And then I cried out, similar, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. First vision was forgive. Second vision, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Interesting scholars debate here. There may have been an eruption within the earth that dried up all the springs under the ground and even the rivers, and there was a drought. Or some scholars believe there was an, a volcanic eruption. But whatever it was, again, agricultural disaster, the poor of the land, the farmers, they lose everything. Now I want you to notice Amos' response and God's response. Amos' response both times is to do what God often calls his people to do, intercede. Stand between the problem and God. Get involved. And Amos does. First, you can see the compassion on his heart. They are so small. God have mercy on little Jacob. These farmers, these people, they're not going to make it. Amos is moved with compassion. And then in boldness, he actually laments. Forgive us. Stop. He intercedes boldly, believing that God will hear and act. And so, what does God do? Surprisingly... He acts and he relents. That word in the Hebrew is interesting, relent. It literally means to change your mind, moved by emotion. So God is moved. As Amos intercedes, God becomes emotional and he, quote unquote, changes his mind. Now here's where we really enter a little interesting theology. Stay with me. Sometimes we bump up against God who is massive and big. And us who are, let's just say, we're not massive and not big. And we try to understand how human beings and God relate to each other. And sometimes the only thing you can come away with is to say this. Sometimes two truths are true, but they're held in tension. So, on the one hand, we believe that God knows everything. We believe he has been involved from the end to the beginning. That... God is so big that he actually stands outside of time. All time is present to him at once. He's not in time. He doesn't have to wait to see what's going to happen. Doesn't have to just stand around and watch. He all of time and all of history is before him at once, so he knows the beginning and through the end. He knows everything. So in in some from God's point of view, theologically, God doesn't change his mind. He's planned it all. And he's never surprised. And he's can control and engaged. That's from God's point. That's a truth. But the truth that's held in tension is that God has entered time and lives with us in time. And so from our point of view, God tells us to intercede. And when we intercede, somehow God makes space in time for him to actually change what he's doing. And that He responds to repentance. And that He listens to our prayers. And He actually changes things around. So in the one truth, God is sovereign and all-wise. And knows the end from the beginning. And on the other hand, when we pray and repent, He hears us and changes things. A paradox. Two truths in tension. Because God is massively big And we are massively small. That's the theology going on behind here. Here's the truth of it. And let's apply this to our lives. When Amos intervenes, things happen. And God says, I relent and I'll hold off. What the purpose of the first two visions is, is to remind Amos and thus remind you and me that God loves the world and he keeps waiting for more people to come in and more people to come to God and more people to know Jesus. He keeps waiting. He loves the world. (laughs) I had a great, great moment with God this week. Uh, I, every year I try to read through the Bible and it just so happened that this week, thank you, Holy spirit. This week I I was reading and I came, this was not my plan. This was God, you know, and from the beginning, um, Second Kings is where I'm reading through, and I come across Second Kings 1425, where it says that during the reign of Jeroboam the Second, that's Amos, that's where we are. Jonah prophesied that Israel would prosper. And you know, during the reign of Jeroboam, we've said Solomon was the golden age, and Jeroboam the second was the silver age. Jonah prophesied that. That Israel would have a time of great prosperity. Now, think with me. You know, we've made much of this idea that Amos was sent to Israel to call them back to God and get on mission around the year six, 765 B.C., Because it says at the beginning of Amos, two years before the great earthquake. And the archaeologists actually know that happened in 765 BC. They have archaeological evidence of this earthquake. That's when Amos is preaching to Israel, seek me and live, seek me and live, come on back. Then he waits, we know, 50 years, right? 50 years until 722 B.C. before the Assyrians come and carry Israel into exile. And Israel, the northern kingdom, is no more. 50 years. So I'm thinking. Now, what I'm about to tell you is sanctified speculation. See if you agree. I think that part of that 50 years of waiting was because of what Jonah was doing in Israel. You will remember that Jonah was sent to preach to a place called Nineveh. You know, at first, like you and me, he went to Spain. Spain, Iraq, you choose Spain too. Um, Finally, God turns him around and gets him to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the, the nation and empire, Assyria. In the ancient world, Assyria is known as the Nazis of their day, the fiercest, cruelest civilization of people known in the ancient world. If, you know, we get on Jonah, you probably wouldn't have gone either. I, I wouldn't have. Finally, Jonah goes, he, he is a racist, by the way. He hates Assyria. I think he knows what Assyria is going to do to Israel. God finally gets him there, and Jonah, it's five words in the Hebrew. And it can literally be translated, 40 days, turn or burn. I can't imagine Billy Graham preaching that way, you know? It's just, that, that wouldn't work. 40 days, turn or burn. And guess what? Nineveh turns. 120,000 people. From street people to the king. In Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, turn to God. I'm yours. They give their lives to God. It's one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. I'm telling you, the miracle in Jonah has nothing to do with a whale and everything to do with a city on its knees before God. Stay with. Me. So I'm suggesting that part of the 50-year wait until God comes and has Assyria carry Israel off was because Jonah preached in Nineveh. And the whole capital city was for a while followers of Yahweh. What I'm suggesting is that God here is working both sides of the aisle. He's working with Israel. Come on back. Come back to me. Seek me and live. And he's working with Assyria on your knees. This is reality. This, the God of Israel is your God. He's working both sides of the aisle. Do you see how God is a God of love? He has deep love with His people, and He won't quit on them. He has covenant love, and He keeps hanging in there for His people, and He's willing to wait for you to come home. And then He has wide love, which reaches the farthest, cruelest people on the face of the earth, Assyria. And He's saying, I'm working with them too. And this is all working together. Do you see how deep... And wide is the love of God, loving his own Israel and loving the fierce Assyrians and working it all together. I'm just blown away by the love of God. Blown away. Deep with his people, wide with his world. Calling people. You know, you can't do anything too wrong to have God not love you. His love will reach you, no matter who you are or what you've done. He works with murderers. He works with adulterers. He work, who, I mean, he, you can't do anything to stop God from wanting to reach you. He loves you. That's a fire. God's love is an unquenchable, unstoppable fire and he wants you caught up in his love and becoming that fire now let's get to the application what does that mean that God loves the world Israel and Assyria that means he's calling you to be an intercessor like Amos and take the love to the world so what does that mean first of all that means that there is no one beyond the reach of God's love that means that we never as believers give up on anybody we never give up on God's love reaching somebody. My life verse shared this with you before, is Ecclesiastes :4, which says, "Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion." So while you're alive, there is always hope. So we don't quit on people. We do not give up on anyone. We believe that there's no one who is bad enough that God's love can't reach them. I wanted to share this little interesting thing I came across this week. It's by uh, uh, Russell Moore. Is, is a theologian and writer of our day. He uh, is talking about you know how hard things get in the evangelical church, and it seems like we're losing our influence. Uh, he re- recalls a conversation that he had with the great evangelical theologian C.F.H. Henry who was one of the giants of the 20th century, as Moore and some of his friends were lamenting the miserable shape of the church, they asked Dr. Henry if he saw any hope in the new generation, any hope. Here's what Dr. Henry replied. Of course, there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals, but the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to become Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis or Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, became mighty warriors for the faith. And then Russell Moore adds, listen to this. I think it's true. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin Fish on his bumper. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity this morning. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic as we speak. No one, no one is beyond the reach of God's love. And His love is an unstoppable fire. So what I'm asking you is do you pray that way? Do you pray that way? I'd actually like to have us apply the message right now, okay? I want to have three brief moments of prayer. Silent prayer. You don't have to pray anything out loud, but I do want you to engage with God right now. So would you join me as we become intercessors like Amos for people around the world? Let's pray together. The first part of the prayer, I'd like you to talk to God about this. God, set my heart on fire with how deep and wide Your love is. So put that in your own words. Ask that from God. Set my heart on fire. With how deep and wide. Your love. Next, one of Waterstone's rhythms, and that is one of our values. One of the things we believe God's called us to do is to be, is to what we call neighbor. And part of neighboring is being an intercessor for the people who live near us, work with us, play with us. I mean, they're on parents on our kids' sports teams. Um, What I'd like you to do now you and God, but maybe out loud if you're so led, just first name only, would you start shouting out, and let's fill this room with the names of people to whom we want God's love to be revealed. Would you just start saying names and put your neighbors out there for God to love them and reveal himself to them? Go ahead. And lastly, (laughs) what we're saying is that God loves his people Israel and wants them back on mission. And what we're saying is that God loves the Assyrians, the bad people, and he wants them in mission. I want us to pray for the Assyrians right now. I want you to think of an enemy, a bad person, a bad cult, whatever it is. I want you to think of whatever you think of when you think of fierce, cruel people. I want you to pray that God's love will move into their lives and break them. You don't have to say anything out loud. Whoever comes to your mind when you hear enemy, Assyrian, cruel, pray for bad people right now. Intercede. Lord, hear our prayers. Relent. Forgive. Stop. Stop. Forgive. Amen. So, God, in the first two visions, shows that he's a God of love. He loves the world. And he's working both sides of the aisle. He's working with Israel, his people, to get them on mission. He's working with Assyria, bad people, to get them in mission. And he is a God of love. Then there's the second pair of visions, and let's put those on the screen now. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel, and I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Scholars debate the, the real, literally, Hebrew word for plumb line is the word tin. So, you know, when they would make walls straight, they would drop drops of tin and make sure it could drop to the bottom to see how straight the wall was. Some think it's just that Israel is crooked and it can't be straightened. Some think that the idea of tin is uh, they were trying to build walls of tin, weak walls that will be pushed over. And when they come up against God, they will not stand. Here's the fourth vision and the last one for today. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere, silent. The Hebrew word tin is one consonant different from the Hebrew word whale, and it rhymes. The Hebrew word fruit is one consonant different from the Hebrew word end, and it rhymes. Doubly sure that now God's patient mercy has run out, and it's time for action. It's time to move on. Here, if the first two visions are about God waiting and being patient in love, these second two visions are about God's holiness, his devastating holiness, and that he hates sin and he will engage. First visions, God is love. Second visions, God hates sin. Now, we in churches, especially in America, we have trouble holding those two truths together. It seems to me, see if you don't agree, it seems to me that we either have happy churches or angry churches. And the happy churches are those who, you know, Jesus is our buddy, happy clappy, and he always agrees with us, and he would never confront our lifestyles. And, of course, he wants us to be wealthy and pursuing pleasure. And, you know, if we're happy, then God's happy. And God would never disagree with us. And so they airbrush. They go through the scriptures selectively and just airbrush out any sense of devastating holiness, any sense of justice, any sense that God's going to hold us accountable for the choices and behavior that we live, or they 're angry churches, angry churches like god 's just up there with his Louisville slugger up in heaven, and if you step out of line, whack you know, and he won 't have anything to do with you until you 're in line, get back in line he won 't listen to you. Happy churches or angry churches. And Amos is calling us to say these are both true. God is love and he hates sin. And God will judge sin and move against it. Why? Because sin devastates people's lives. And he'll deal with it. And he'll deal with sinners. We need both. We need a vision of a God who is love and always pursuing people, Israel and Assyria. And we need a vision of God who is always out to stamp out sin on his universe and his planet and his plans. He is moving against sin. I remind you that the person in the Bible who talked the most about judgment and hell is whom? Jesus. Jesus. We like to think the Old Testament is all wrath, and the New Testament is all love. I would encourage you to read through the Gospels and see how many times Jesus talks about Hell, see what he says about it, and he holds nothing back. Jesus, you know, I, you realize right that hell's not an invention of the devil. The devil didn't deliver hell to God. The, hell is God's hell. God invented hell. God. In order to wake us up to reality, God brings hell. It's part of his reality. Jesus preached it. And the other interesting thing about hell, as you read through the Gospels, unlike Jonah, Jesus never leaves with hell. He doesn't go up to a complete crowd of strangers to evangelize and say, 40 days, turn or burn. No. Whenever he talks about hell, this is interesting. He is talking to followers or Pharisees. People who know God. In other words, hell is a very important doctrine for Christians to understand what reality is. Why? In order to motivate us to share the love of God. We realize that we once had reservations for hell. The fire of your love to share and intercede for people is directly proportional to the amount of mercy you perceive you've received. And if you knew that once your life was on a trajectory to hell, but God came into your life, opened your eyes, had you wager on reality and you now wager on Jesus, but you realized that could have been you, that is Fire for you to become an evangelist like Amos and intercede for people. I remind you that no one in hell does not want to be there. No one in hell does not want to be there. Everyone who is in hell now does not want to get out. Jesus once told a story about a rich man in and Lazarus, and, he, and Lazarus in that story he, he's still defining his own reality and telling God what to do. And basically, I want nothing to do with you, God. But would you send someone to tell my sisters and brothers about what's going on? But not once does the rich man ask to get out of hell. Why? Because he doesn't want God. He's Amaziah. He's saying, I'll define my own reality, God. Leave me alone. And God is just enough to give that to anyone who says that's what they want. C.S. Lewis once said, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Knowing that we were on the trajectory believer to hell should lead us to be a person of love and share the gospel with people. Here's the wagering. Here's how it all ends. Jesus calls us to the wagering table right now with Amos and Amaziah with these verses in Luke 14. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Jesus is talking to a large crowd. He is doing evangelism here. And what he's saying is that, look, one day you will get the wake-up call to mortality. You will. You will be called to the wagering table to decide who defines reality. And God's going to call you to account. Face reality. Waterstone, face reality. God is going to call every person to account. And if you go up against God, who has the lasting and true appraisal of your life, you will lose. That's what this guy's thinking. I've got 20,000, that king's got uh, I've got 10,000, that king's got 20,000. If I go up against him, I'm going to lose. So I'm just going to turn to him right now and say, "Can we have peace?" And what you do, here's the surprise of the Christian faith. As soon as you realize if I go up against God, you know, I don't have the weapons. I don't have the goodness or the strategy. If I go up against God on my terms, I lose. You realize that as soon as you turn to God, He's already, here's the surprise, sent the peace delegation for you. His name was Jesus. He walked onto the battlefield. And just as God is about to make everything new and bring justice and devastating holiness to the planet, Jesus steps in and says, I'm on the field for you. I will live the life you should have lived. So that when God looks through His lens at you, He sees Jesus perfect righteousness and I will die the death for you Jesus says on the battlefield I'll die for you and when God looks at you through his lenses he sees forgiveness of sin so that you have the fitness to live with God forever seek God and live he's already on the battlefield for you he descended into hell for you so that you could live in heaven Seek God and live. You know, there's a guy named Pascal, Blaise Pascal. You probably ran into him in your sophomore year when you took geometry. He was a French mathematician, philosopher. What we all don't realize is he was a great evangelist in the 1600s. And he had his closing line was a technique that he called Pascal's wager. So we're at the gambling table and you have to wage on what you believe reality is. Pascal says, look, what if you bet on Jesus and it's not true? What have you lost? What have you lost? Nothing. You may have to give a few things up here and, you know, live a righteous life. But if if Jesus is not true, you lose nothing in the end. But what if you're Amaziah and you say, God, I'll live my own reality. Thank you. I'm going to live for the kingdom of here and now. I don't need you. Leave me alone. What if that's your wager? You bet everything on that. And in the end, Jesus is true. Then what do you lose? Everything. Everything. I don't know all of you. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know why you're here this morning, except I believe God brought you here to hear this. I plead with you. I plead with you. Based on the historical significance of Jesus and the most well-documented, manuscripted story in history, I plead with you. Bet on Jesus. Bet on Jesus. And you've nothing to lose and everything to gain. Please, bet on Jesus. I'd like to finish before we sing uh, with a sinner's prayer. And if you're here this morning and you've never looked to Jesus and never asked Him into your heart, would you do that with me right now and bet on Jesus? Let's pray. You don't have to say these words out, out loud. You just repeat them to Jesus. And meet him this morning. Lord Jesus Christ. I believe you are. The son of God. I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus you came to live the life. I couldn't live. But you give me your righteousness. And I believe you died the death I couldn't die. So I believe you forgive me, God. And so I'm giving you my life. I'm betting on you, Jesus. And I want to follow you and your reality the rest of my days. I'm yours. Amen.